Section 15 of Bethlehem by Frederick William Faber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The First Worshippers, Part 4. But our seventh type of devotion to the sacred infancy brings us to a very different picture. The world of the church is itself a hidden world, but even within it there is another world still more deeply hidden. It is the very cloister of the Holy Ghost, though without any show of cloister, a world of humblest peace, of shyest love, and of most secret communion with God. It gives us much to think of, but little to say. There is little to describe in its variety, but much in its heavenly union to feed the repose of prayer. The gorgeous apparition of the kings in the gloomy cave has passed away. The babe, too, has left the cave. Our present picture is the same humble mystery of Bethlehem, which is now enacted on a gorgeous scene. We must pass to the glorious courts of the magnificent temple, when its little unknown master has come to take possession, the true high priest with a thicker veil of incredible humiliation round him than that which shrouded the local holy of holies from the gazing multitude. It is the mystery of Mary's jubilee, the presentation of our Lord, mingling with that true-hearted deceit of humility, her needless purification. The babe's new worshippers are Simeon and Anna, who so resemble each other amidst their differences that we may regard them as forming one type of worship. Anna was a widow of the tribe of Asher, who filled no place in the public eye, but in whom her little circle of friends had recognized and revered the spirit of prophecy from time to time. She thus had an obscure sphere of influence of her own. She was a figure familiar to the eyes of many in Jerusalem, whose piety led them to the morning sacrifices in the temple. Bowed down with the weight of fourscore years and four, her own house was not her home, even if she had a house she could call her own. The temple was her home. It was rarely that she left its hallowed precincts. She performed in her single self the offices of a whole religious community, for she carried on the unbroken round of her adoration through the night as well as through the day. Long past the age when bodily macerations form an indispensable element in holiness, her life was nevertheless a continual fast. Prayer was the work of her life and penance its recreation. Herod most likely had never heard of her, but she was dear to God, and was known honorably to his servants. God has widows like her in all Christian cities. Simeon also was worn out with age and watching. He had placed himself on the battlements of Zion, and while his eyes were filled with the sweet tears of prayer, he was ever looking out for Messiah that was to come. Good people knew him well, and they said of him that he was a just man, even and fair, striving for nothing, claiming no privileges, ready to give way, most careful to be prompt and full and considerate and timely in all his dealings with others, giving no ground for complaint to anyone, modest and self-possessed, attentive yet unobtrusive, such was the character he bore among those of his religious fellow-citizens to whom he was known. But to the edification of his justice he added the beautiful and captivating example of the tenderest piety. Devotion was the very life of his soul, the gift of piety reigned in his heart, like many holy persons, he had set his affections on what seemed like an earthly beatific vision. He must see the Lord's Christ before he dies. There is a look of something obstinate and fanciful in his devotion. It is in reality a height of holiness. He has cast his spiritual life in one mould. 
It was a life of desire, a life of watching, a life of long-delayed but never despondent waiting for the consolation of Israel. There is a humble pertinency about his prayer which is to bend God's will to his own. It was a mighty fire of love which burned in his simple heart, and the Holy Ghost loved to dwell among its guileless flames. It was revealed to him that his obstinate waiting had been a dear worship to God, that he should have his will, and that he should see with his aged eyes the beauty of the Lord's Christ, before he was called away from earth. He therefore was a haunter of the temple, for where should he be more likely to meet the Christ than there? Our God always gives more than he promises. Simeon did not only see the Christ, but was allowed to take him up in his arms, and doubtless to print a kiss of trembling reverence upon the Creator's human lips. How else could his lips have ever sung so beautiful a song, a song so sunset-like that one might believe all the beauty of all earth's beautiful evenings since creation had gone into it to fill it full of peaceful spells? He was old for a poet, but his age had not dried or drained his heart. The infirm old man held bravely in his arms the strength of the omnipotent. He held up the light of the world on high in the midst of his own temple, just before he himself was lost in the inaccessible light of a glorious eternity. His weak eyes, misty with age and dim with tears, looked into the deep eyes of the babe of Bethlehem, and to his faith they were fountains of eternal light. This was the vision that he had been seeing all his life long. He had wept over the drooping fortunes of Israel, but much more over the shepherdless wanderings of the souls of his dear countrymen. But he had ever seen through his tears, as we may see through a thick storm of rain, waving like a ponderous curtain to and fro, while the wind is slowly undrawing it, a green mountain, bright and sun-stricken, with patches of illuminated yellow corn upon its sides, and strips of green ferny moorland, and jutting knolls of purple heather, and the wet, silvery shimmering on the roofs of men's dwellings. Now the evening of life was come, the rain was passed away, and the Lord's mountain came out, not bright and radiant only, but so astonishingly near, that he might have thought his eyes were but deceiving him. But no, the face of Jesus was close to his. Heaven had come to him on earth. It was the heaven of his own choosing. Strange lover of his land and people, he had preferred to see Jesus on earth, and so be sure that now poor Israel might possess him, rather than have gone long since by an earlier death to have seen the word through the quiet dimness of Abraham's bosom. Was it not the loveliest of mysteries to see those arms that were shaking and unsteady with long lapse of time, so fondly enfolding the ever-young eternity of God? Was it not enough for Simeon? Oh, was it not unspeakably more than enough? As nightingales are said to have sung themselves to death, so Simeon died not of the sweet weariness of his long watching, but of the fullness of his contentment of the satisfaction of his desires, of the very new youth of soul which the touch of the eternal child had infused into his age, and breaking forth into music which heaven itself might envy and could not surpass, he died with his world-soothing song upon his lips. There is a little world of such souls as Simeon and Anna within the church. But it lies deep down, and its inmates are seldom brought to the light, even by the honours of canonization. It is a subterranean world, the diamond mine of the church, from whose caverns a stone of wondrous lustre is taken now and then to feed our faith, to reveal to us the abundant, though hidden, operations of grace, and to comfort us when the world's wickedness and our own depress us, by showing that God has pastures of his own 
under our very feet, where his glory feeds without our seeing it. So that, as sight goes for little in the world of faith, in nothing does it go for less than in the seeming evil of the world. Everywhere evil is undermined by good. It is only that good is undermost, and this is one of the supernatural conditions of God's presence. As much evil as we see, so much good or more do we know assuredly lies under it, which, if not equal to the evil in extent, is far greater in weight and power and worth and substance. Evil makes more show, and thus has a look of victory, while good is daily outwitting evil by simulating defeat. We must never think of the church without allowing largely for the extent of obscure piety the sphere of hidden souls. We can form no intellectual judgment of the abundance of grace, of the number of the saved, or of the inward beauty of individual souls, which even intellectually is worth anything, unless we form our estimate in the light of prayer. Charity is the truest truth, and the judgments of charity are large. The light of our own unsanctified judgment is at best but as moonlight in the world of faith, strangely distorting, grotesquely disfiguring everything. The light of prayer is as the beam of steadfast day. Who does not know how sunshine positively peoples mountainside and wood? How, as it rests, it builds homes we could dwell in, so our fancy deems, in the rifted crags or under the leafy shades? How, wherever it has touched, it has located a beauty, and has left it when it passes on. So is it with the light of prayer when it plays upon this difficult, questionable world around us. It alone lights up for us continually this incessant heaven upon earth, this precious region of obscure souls, in which God is always served, as if it were one of the angelic choirs. Who does not remember when a supernatural principle first unveiled itself before him, and showed that it was a thing of God? It was some one moment in a dawn of prayer which was like day's first inroad upon night. So will it be with us to the end. Faith has a sort of vision of its own, but there is no light in which it can distinguish objects except the light of prayer. We must always therefore keep our eye fixed on this obscure world of holy hidden souls, that private unsuspected stronghold of God's glory upon earth, where so much of his treasure is laid up. Simeon and Anna are disclosures to us of that hidden world. They have a place, an office, and a power in the life of the church, which is not the less indispensable because it is also indefinable. The Father's glory would not have been adequately represented at the court of the infant Jesus if this obscure region had not sent thither its embassy of lowly beauty and of venerable grace. Much of our most intimate acquaintance with the adorable character of God arises from our observations of this hidden world. It is the richest of all worlds in its contributions to the science of divine things. If we may venture so to speak, God is less upon his guard against our observations there than elsewhere. He affects secrecy the less himself, because the particular world in which he is working is itself so secret. He is content with the twilight round him, without pitching his well-known tent of darkness each time he vouchsafes to camp. In the case of the shepherds, we saw how they came up out of darkness, stood for a moment in the splendor of Bethlehem, and then passed on into the dark again. Here we see with Simeon and Anna what a long preparation God makes in the soul for what appears to be only a momentary manifestation. It shows of what deep import a brief transitory mystery is when a novitiate of perhaps fourscore years is barely long enough to fit those for their part in it 
who are, after all, but accessories and incidents. If it be true to say that with God all ends are only means, because he is himself the only veritable end, so also it is true in a sense that all means with him are ends, because he is present in those means. Thus, these long lives of preparation for one momentary appearance on the stage of the world's drama are, when we view them supernaturally, ends themselves, and each step of grace in the long career, each link of holiness in the vast chain, is itself a most sufficient end, because it holds in itself him who is the only end. But this is not the way men judge of history. With them it is wandering humanity which is made to confer the importance on the actors in the world's theatre, and to confer it in proportion to the visible results between the actors and humanity. With God it is his own glory which is the hidden centre of all history, and it requires a special study with a strong habit of faith and a steady light of prayer to enable us to read history in his way. But besides this long preparation for a momentary and subordinate appearance in a divine mystery, we must observe also how God often comes to men in their old age. They have lived for that which only comes when real life seems past. What a divine meaning there is in all this! The significance of a whole life often comes uppermost only in the preparation for death. Our destiny only begins to be fulfilled after it appears to have been worked out. Who knows what he is intended for? What we have dreamed was our mission is of all things the least likely to have been such. For missions are divine things and therefore generally hidden, generally unconsciously fulfilled. If there are some who seem to have done their work early and then live on, we know not why. There are far more who do their real work late on, and not a few who only do it in the act of dying. Nay, is it not almost so in natural things? Life, for the most part, blooms only once, and like the aloe, it blooms late. Neither must we fail to note under what circumstances it is God's habit to come to these hidden souls. The devotion of Simeon and Anna is eminently a devotion of prayer and church-frequenting. In other words, God comes to holy souls not so much in heroic actions, which are rather the souls leaping upward to God, but in the performance of ordinary habitual devotions and the discharge of modest unobtrusive duties made heroic by long perseverance and inward intensity. How much matter for thought is there in all these reflections, and in divine things what is matter for thought is matter for practice also. Thus, if the angelic song was the opening of heaven before our eyes, this apparition of Simeon and Anna is the opening beneath our feet of an exquisite hidden world, a realm of subterranean angels, a secret abyss of human hearts in which God loves to hide himself, a region of evening calmness and of twilight tranquillity, a world of rest and yet of power, heated with the whole day's sunshine and giving forth its fragrance to the cooling dews, a world which not only teaches us much but consoles us also, yet leaves us pensive, for does not consolation always leave us so? Casting over us a profitable spiritual shadow, like the melancholy in which a beautiful sunset so often steeps the mind, breeding more loving thoughts of others, and in ourselves a more contented lowliness. The lake lies smooth and motionless in the quiet light of evening. The great mountains with their bosses of mottled crag protruding through the green turf and the islets with their aerial pines are all imaged downwards in the pellucid waters. Even the heron, that has just gone to roost on the dead branch, is mirrored there. The faintly rosy sky between the tops of the many-fingered firs is reflected there, 
as if it were fairy fretwork in the mere. But upon yon promontory of rock a little blameless boy, afraid of the extreme tranquillity or angry with it, or to satisfy some impulsive restlessness within him, has thrown a stone into the lake, and that fairy world, that delicate creation, is instantly broken up and fled. So is it with that spiritual world of placid beauty, which we have been contemplating in the worship of Simeon and Anna. Our next type of devotion to the sacred infancy drives us with shout and cry from its pleasant melancholy, as if we were trespassers in such a gentle world. Yet it is not altogether a scene of unmingled violence which is coming. But who does not know those plaintive sounds, sad in themselves but sadder in their circumstances, which can sometimes extinguish even the shining of bright light, making one sense master another, like the cry of the lapwing among ruins? So is it with us now. Like silent apparitions, Simeon and Anna pass away. We hear loud voices and shrill expostulations, as of women in misery talking all at once, like the jargon in the summer woods when the birds have risen against the hawk, and then the fearful cry of excited lamentation with the piteous moaning of the infant victims mingled with the inconsolable wailing of their brave, powerless mothers. It is the massacre of the holy innocents. Yet, even this dismal scene is a scene of worship, Tragic as it is, it has a quiet side, and a beauty which, bloodstained though it be, is not unbecoming to the meek majesty of Bethlehem. Alas, how the anguish of those mothers, that were so inconsiderate to her who was on the point of becoming a mother like ourselves, and how the wrathful but more silent misery of the fathers is expiating in its own streets the inhospitality of Bethlehem. But those little ones are mighty saints of God, and their infant cries were a most articulate revelation of many of his mysterious ways. The apparent contradiction that innocence should do penance is one of the primary laws of the Incarnation. The infant Saviour himself began it. It was involved in the state of humiliation in which he came. It was part of the pathos of a fallen world. But none shared it with him at Bethlehem except the holy innocence. To Mary he brought a new access of heavenly joy, and when the tender hand of Simeon was nerved by the Holy Ghost to plant in her heart the first of the seven swords she was to bear, it was the untimely woe of Calvary that pierced her soul and not the penances of Bethlehem. To Joseph the joy the infant brought was yet more unmingled. The Baptist leapt with exultation in his mother's womb when the babe came near. The angels sang because the mystery was full of jubilee, to the shepherds it was good tidings of great joy, and to the king's contentment and delight. To Simeon and Anna also he came as light and peace and satisfaction and jubilee. His brightness had made earth so dull that all which was left them now was speedily to die. But the holy innocents joined their infant cries with his. To them the glad Christmas and the singing angels brought but blood and death, they were the first martyrs of the word, and their guilt was his, that they were born in Bethlehem. Renewing the miracle which he had wrought for John the Baptist, our Lord is said to have conferred the full use of reason, with immense and magnificent graces on these little ones at the moment of their martyrdom, so that they might see him in the clear splendor of their faith, might voluntarily accept of death for his sake, and might accompany their sacrifice by the loftiest acts of supernatural holiness and heroism. The revelation of the saints also tells us of the singular power now accorded in heaven to these infant martyrs, 
especially in connection with deathbeds, and St. Francis of Sales died reiterating with marked emphasis and significance the invocation of the holy innocents. They too were beautiful figures in the court of Bethlehem. They were children like the prince of Bethlehem himself. They were his companions in nativity, his mates in age and size, and though it was no slight thing to have these natural alliances with him, by grace they were much more, for they were likenesses of him, and they were his martyrs. A twofold light shines in the faces of this infant crowd, the light of Mary and the light of Jesus. They resembled Mary in their sinless purity, for even if our Lord had not constituted them in a state of grace before, their original sin would be more than expiated by their guileless blood when it was shed for him. It was a fearful font, a most bloody sacrament at which an infant like themselves held them as their godfather, that they might lie in his paternal bosom forevermore. They were like Mary in their martyrdom for Jesus, as all the martyrs were, but they were like her also in that their martyrdom was as it were the act of Jesus himself. He was the sword which slew them. He was the proximate cause of all they suffered. It is only more remotely so with the other martyrs. This is one of their distinctions. They resembled her also in the nearness to Jesus. They were among the few who were admitted into the hierarchy of the Incarnation. Their souls were amidst the attendants who waited on his human soul when he rose on Easter morning, and who ascended with him into heaven. But the light of Jesus also was in their faces. It was not only in the material similitudes of being born when he was born, and where he was born, that they were like him. They resembled him with a most divine truthfulness by being bidden to counterfeit him. Their mission was to represent him, to stand in his place, to be supposed to contain him among themselves. Simeon and Anna lived long lives before they reached their work, and it was gently laid at their doors at the very extremity of life. Their earthly work lay almost at the threshold of heaven. The lot of the innocents was the reverse of this. They were just born, and their mission was handed to them instantly and abruptly, and its fulfilment was death. Yet in what a sense is it true of all of us? that we are but born to die. Happy they who find the great wisdom which lies in that little truth. But there was more than this in their likeness to our Lord. In one way they outstripped him. They died for him as he died for all. They paid him back the life he laid down for them. Nay, they were beforehand with him, for they laid their lives down for him before he laid his down for them. They saved his life. They put off his calvary, they secured to us his sweet parables, his glorious miracles, and those abysses of his grown-up passion, in which the souls of the redeemed dwell in their proper element, like fish within the deep. Yet again, is there not a sense in which we all pay our dear Lord back with our lives for the life that he gave us? What is a Christian life but a lingering death, of which physical death is but the last consummating act? And if it be not all for Christ, how is it a Christian life? Nevertheless, in the historical reality of all this lies the grand prerogative of the holy innocents. Notwithstanding their miraculous use of reason, they are still types to us of that devotion so common among the higher saints, the devotion of almost unconscious mortification. They are like those who commit themselves to God and then take what is sure to come. They not only commit themselves to Him without conditions, but they do not count the cost, because to them his love is cheaply bought at the price of all possible sacrifices. Hence there is no cost to count. 
The truest mortification does not forecast because it is self-oblivious. Thus it was with James and John when they offered to drink our Saviour's cup, and how heroically they did drink it when it came. Thus it is that heroic mortification is so often taken by surprise, and men who cannot discern the saints aright think that the grandeur of their purpose for a moment faltered, when all the while the surprise was only stirring up deeper depths of grace and meriting the more divinely. These infant martyrs represent also what must in its measure befall every one who draws near to Jesus. Suffering goes out of him like an atmosphere. The air is charged with the seed of crosses, and the soul is sown all over with them before it is aware. Moreover, the cross is a quick growth, and can spring up and blossom and bear fruit almost in a night, while from its vivacious root a score of fresh crosses will spring up and cover the soul with the peculiar verdure of Calvary. They that come nearest to our Lord are those who suffer most and who suffer the most unselfishly. With his use of reason he could have spoken and complained, so might the innocents, but they worshipped only with their cries. One moment they were made aware of the full value of their dear lives, and the next moment they were of their own accord to give them up, and not to let their newly given reason plead, but even to hide it with the cries of unreasoning infancy. Never were martyrs placed under so peculiar a trial. How well they teach the old lesson that unselfishness is its own reward, and that to hold our tongues about our wrongs is to create a new fountain of happiness within ourselves, which only needs the shade of secrecy to be perennial. If they paid dear for the honour of being the fellow townsmen of our Lord, how magnificent were the graces which none but he could have accumulated in that short moment, and which he gave to them with such a regal plenitude. To be near Jesus was the height of happiness, yet it was also both a necessity and a privilege of suffering. We cannot spare the holy innocence from the beautiful world of Bethlehem. Next to Mary and Joseph, we could take them away least of all. Without them, we should read the riddle of the Incarnation wrong, by missing many of its deepest laws. They are symbols to us of the necessities of nearness to our Lord, they are the living laws of the vicinity of Jesus. Softened through long ages, their mother's cries and the children's moans come to us almost as a sad strain of music, sweeter than it is sad, sweet even because it is so sad, the moving elegy of Bethlehem. There is still another presence in the cave of Bethlehem which is a type of devotion to the sacred infancy. Deep withdrawn into the shade so as to be scarcely visible, stands one who is gazing on all the mysteries with holy amazement and tenderest rapture. He takes no part in any of them. His attitude is one of mute observance. He is like one of those shadowy figures which painters sometimes introduce into their pictures, rather as suggesting something to the beholder than as historically part of the action represented. It is St. Luke, the beloved physician of St. Paul and the first Christian painter, he forms a type of worship by himself, and must not be detached from the other eight, though he was out of time with them. To us he is an essential feature of Bethlehem. The Holy Ghost had elected him to be the historiographer of the sacred infancy. Without him we should have known nothing of the holy childhood, except the startling visit of the three heathen kings, which was so deeply impressed on St. Matthew's Hebrew imagination together with the massacre of the innocents and the flight into Egypt, which were the consequences of that visit, and so part of the one history. 
In the vision of inspiration, the Holy Ghost renewed to him the world of Bethlehem and the sweet spiritual pageantry of all its gentle mysteries. To him, the first artist of the church, we fitly owe the three songs of the gospel, the Magnificat, the Benedictus, and the Nunc Dimittis. He was as much the evangelist of the sacred infancy as St. John was the evangelist of the words divinity, or St. Matthew and St. Mark of the active life of our blessed Lord. He represents the devotion of artists and the posture of Christian art at the feet of the incarnate Saviour. Christian art, rightly considered, is at once a theology and a worship, a theology which has its own method of teaching, its own ways of representation, its own devout discoveries, its own varying opinions, all of which are beautiful so long as they are in subordination to the mind of the Church. What is the blessed John of Fiersol's Life of Christ, but, next to St. Thomas, the most magnificent treatise on the Incarnation, which was ever conceived or composed. No one can study it without learning new truths each time. It gives up slowly and by degrees to the loving eye the rich treasures of a mastermind, full of depth and tenderness and truth and heavenly ideal. It is a means of grace which sanctifies us even as we look upon it, and melts us into prayer. Of a truth, art is a revelation from heaven and a mighty power for God. It is a merciful disclosure to men of his more hidden beauty. It brings out things in God which lie too deep for words, things which words must needs make heresies if they try to speak them. In virtue of its heavenly origin, it has a special grace to purify men's souls and to unite them to God by first making them unearthly. If art debased is the earthliest of things, true art, not unmindful that it also, like our Lord, was born in Bethlehem and cradled with him there, is an influence in the soul so heavenly that it almost seems akin to grace. It is a worship, too, as well as a theology. From what abyss rose those marvellous forms upon the eye of John of Fiersol, except from the depths of prayer? Have we not often seen the Divine Mother and her blessed child so depicted that it was plain they never were the fruit of prayer, and do we not instinctively condemn them even on the score of art, without directly adverting to religious feeling? The temper of art is a temper of adoration. Only a humble man can paint divine things grandly. His types are delicate and easily missed, shifting under the least pressure and bending unless handled softly. An artist who is not joined to God may work wonders of genius with his pencil and colours, but the heavenly spirit the essence of Christian art, will have evaporated from his work. It may remain to future generations as a trophy of anatomy and a triumph of peculiar colouring, but it will not remain as a source of holiest inspiration to Christian minds and an ever-flowing fountain of the glory of God. It may be admired in the gallery, it would offend over the altar. Theology and devotion both owe a heavy debt to art, but it is as parents owe debts to their loving children. They take as gifts what came from themselves, and they love to consider that what is due to them by justice is rather paid to them out of the spontaneous generosity of love. St. Luke is the type and symbol of this true art, which is the child of devotion and theology, and it is significant that he is thus connected with the world of Bethlehem. The characteristics which we have noticed in his gospel seem to be most congenial to his vocation. Our Lord's life is everywhere the representation of the beautiful, but in none of its mysteries is it a more copious fountain of art than in those of his sacred infancy 
and it is these which inspiration has especially loved to disclose to St. Luke's predilection. A painter is a poet also, and hence his gospel is the treasury in which the Christian canticles, all of them canticles of the sacred infancy, are laid up and embalmed for the delight and consolation of all time. The preservation of them was a natural instinct of an artistic mind, which was already fitted to receive a bidding of inspiration so congenial to itself. He was a physician as well as a painter, and there is something kindred in the spirit of the two occupations. The quick eye, the observant gentleness, the appreciation of character, the seizing of the actual circumstances, the genial spirit, the minute attentiveness, the sympathizing heart, the impressionableness to all that is soft, and winning, and lovely, and weak, and piteous, all these things belong to the true physician as well as to the true artist. Hence has it come to pass that the physician of the body has so often been the physician of the soul as well. That which is truly artistic in him makes him a kind of priest, and what above all things are priests, artists, and physicians, but angelic ministers to human sorrow, ministers of love and not of fear, vested with a pathetic office of consolation, which, strange to say, seems the more tender and unselfish, because it is official. Thus St. Luke is noted for his instinct for souls, his gospel has been named the gospel of mercy because it is so full of incidents of our Lord's love of sinners. It is from him chiefly that we have the conversions of sinners and the examples of our Lord's amazing kindness to them, or, we may say rather, of his positive attraction to them, like the physician's attraction to the sick, to use the figure which he himself vouchsafed to use in order to justify himself for his compassionate propensity. After Mary, Luke is the beginner of the devotion to the precious blood, whose apparently indiscriminate abundance and instantaneous absolving power he so artfully magnifies in his beautiful gospel. It is a gospel of sunshine. It throws strong light into the darkest places and loves to use the power it has to do so. And is not all this painter-like? The examples to which the fallen sinner turns instinctively, when hope and despair are battling for his soul, are mostly in the Gospel of St. Luke. He chose what he most loved himself, and inspiration ministered to the bent of his genius, rather than diverted or ignored it. He is known, like all artists, by his choice of subjects. What wonder he was the dear companion of St. Paul, when their minds were so congenial. The magnifying of grace, the facility and abundance of redemption, the vast treasures of hope, the delight of reconciliation with God, the predilection for the grand phenomena of conversion, all these peculiarities of St. Luke's genius would recommend him to the apostle of the precious blood, and would also give him swift admission to the intimacy of Mary. It was perhaps through her that the Holy Ghost revealed to him the mysteries of Bethlehem. To John she spake of the eternal generation of the Word, to Luke of Nazareth and Bethlehem, of the angels and the shepherds and the gospel songs for devotion to Mary is an inalienable inspiration of Christian art, and it is akin also to devotion to the babe of Bethlehem. Luke, with the painter's license, gazed into Mary's face as none other but the infant Jesus had ever gazed into it. He read the mysteries of Bethlehem depicted there. He drank the spirit of the sacred infancy in the fountains of her eyes. He lived with the mother of mercy until he saw nothing but mercy in her son. The image in his heart, which was the model of all other images, was the countenance of the Divine Mother. His idea of Jesus was his marvellous likeness to Mary, likeness not in features only but in office and in soul. 
Thus was the spirit of beauty within him instinctively drawn to Bethlehem, just as Bethlehem has been the most queenly attraction of holy art ever since. Then, when he comes to our Lord's public life and his intercourse with men, it is just such manifestations of his sacred heart as are most congenial to the spirit of the sacred infancy which his predilection chooses for his written portrait of the incarnate word. Let us place him, then, in the cave of Bethlehem, withdrawn into the shadow and looking out from thence with the boldness of his tender eyes upon the mysteries around him. He is there by the appointment of the Holy Ghost as the painter of Mary and the secretary of the infant Jesus. Such were the first worshippers of Bethlehem. Nine types of devotion showed to us there, full of spiritual loveliness and attraction. Nine separate seas that image heaven in their own way, or form altogether one harmonious ocean of worship of the incarnate word. We may join ourselves first to one and then to another of these nine choirs of first worshippers and adore the incarnate word. How wonderful is the variety of devotion, more endless than the variations of light and shade, or the ever-shifting processions of the graceful clouds, or the never-twice-repeated tracery of the forest architecture, as endless, apparently, as the excellences of him who is the centre of all devotion. We may venture, not uninvited, into that dear sanctuary of Bethlehem, and be as heart to Mary, or as thought to Joseph, as voice to John, or as harps to the angels, as sheep to the shepherds, or as incense to the kings, as sweet sights to Simeon and to Anna, or as soft sighs to the holy innocents, or as a pen for Luke to write with, and to write of the babe of Bethlehem. Is it not a beautiful sea of tranquillest devotion, with the spirit of Bethlehem settling down of the purple of its waters, like one of those silent sunsets which are so beautiful that it seems as if they ought to make music in the air? End of section 15